Okay, we're going to be finishing the Gospel of Mark this morning. And I hope over the last ten months, as we've studied this Gospel, that you have heard the call loud and clear. Jesus said, come, follow me. It's a little different than what people think he's inviting us to do. Like some people think it's just simply come and acknowledge me. Come and believe that I'm the way and the truth and the life. In James it says the demons do that. They, they, they believe in God intellectually. And so that's where it starts. But then Jesus says, come, follow me. In chapter 1, you'll recall that he said that to some fishermen. In chapter 10, he said the exact same thing to a wealthy young man, along with the promise, come follow me and you will have treasures in heaven. Now, prior to the resurrection, it, it's maybe understandable if... People looked at Jesus and said, do I really want to follow this Nazarene? Right? He's from Nazareth. Can anything good from, come from Nazareth? Do I really want to follow him? Or if I do, how fervently should I follow him? That's understandable prior to the resurrection. And so now Mark ends his gospel with the resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples followed by his ascension into heaven. Or does he? Or does he? In your Bible, if you open your Bible and you look, between verse 8 and verse 9, you're probably going to see a note in there, likely, that will read something like this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. And so for centuries, scholars have questioned whether Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 actually belong in the Bible. And before you think, oh yeah, must be those liberals, they're always casting doubt on the Word of God, right? Well, actually, conservative Bible-believing Christian scholars... The vast majority of them believe that verses 9 through 20 were actually written by someone other than Mark and just kind of glued on to the end of this gospel. Now, I'm not going to go into the reasons for this, except to say that our two oldest Greek manuscripts and considered the most important ones we have leave out verses 9 through 20, as do plenty of copies. And when you read it, you just kind of see verse 9 really doesn't flow out of verse 8 very smoothly. And it kind of does look a little choppy there. Uh, Maybe that's even an understatement. Uh, But on the other hand, some people will point out that the um, the people who do believe that this was from Mark will point out that over 99% of the manuscripts that we have do contain these verses, and that some in the early church believed that it was original to Mark, including Irenaeus. So this leaves preachers with a question, what do we do with this section? A lot of them are unsure, should we 
preach this or not? Should we just stop after verse 8 or continue? Those who think that this section was added on, uh, they simply don't exegete the text a lot of times. They just pretend it doesn't exist. Others pretend the controversy doesn't exist. And so they just preach it just like everything else. And still others, uh, when they get to verse 9, they, they kind of note the controversy. Um, and then they go on to preach under the assumption that even if Mark didn't write it, God probably wanted someone to write it. And we can therefore assume that it is true. And that's what I intend to do today. Um, my position is I don't know for sure, uh, but I tend to believe that God wanted it there for us and that we can take it as true. So that's the plan. Um, you will all be very sad to learn that my sermon is going to be shorter this morning. So you can all... No, no, that's not the... That's where you groan. And... Uh, it's going to be shorter this morning. I'm going to give uh, Phil some time to come up, and he's going to transition us uh, as we look ahead to the Christmas time, uh, more properly called Advent. Um, and so he's going to make that transition for us uh, at the end. Uh, but for now, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 16. Now, where we left off last Sunday was with Jesus dying on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea preparing Jesus's body for burial. And importantly, at least two women followers, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, witnessing with their own eyes as Joseph laid the body in the tomb and the stone was rolled in front of the tomb to seal it. So from Mark chapter 16, starting with verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But as they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in, white, in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country these returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. 
Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. And he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for ten months of study in this rich gospel. We thank you for the word that you have preserved for us, that you inspired Mark to give to us by your spirit. And Lord, we only hope that we have treated it with the respect and seriousness that it deserves. We acknowledge that our Savior was... Speaking the truth when he said that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And how we need your word in these days of confusion and controversy and lies and deception on every side, how we need your word. We thank you, God, that you have not failed us, that you have given it to us and And we thank you that we can rely on it. Oh, Lord, please help us to always trust in you and always trust in what you've given us as your truth. Help us to build our lives on the words that we have studied. We thank you that you promise, Jesus, that those who do so, if we build our house on the rock, That when the rains come and the winds blow and beat against it, it will stand because we are anchored to the truth. God, help us not to fall prey to the the fads and the, the shifting beliefs and deceptive doctrines of our day. Help us not to build our houses on sand. Help us to always look to you and to keep coming back to your word this morning father as we finish out this study we pray please increase in us the the attitude of humility that we need and we pray this morning that your spirit would be at work in each one of us thank you so much god we are humbled by your kindness to us please bless this time we pray amen
When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So when the sun went down on Saturday, the way that it worked with the Jewish clock was that the Sabbath was officially over at that time. And so the Marys and Salome went shopping. I was going to make a joke about shopping, but I decided this is probably not the right time. Um, But uh, yeah, they went and and the, the word bought actually means purchased. So they went and they purchased these things. What's that? Oh, yeah. I forgot all about dismissing the kids. Thank you, Phil. Um, yeah, Mrs. Graver. You guys just have to shoot a spitwad at me or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Yes, kids, I forgot all about you. Go learn how to sing. Jewish custom, anointing a body, um, and, and that, that is actually confirmed in archaeology. According to archaeologist Robert Smith, Jewish tombs have been discovered with perfume bottles and ointment jars kind of just laying around. So this, is, this, is, um, this was common practice. But back to these ladies. Mark really portrays them as exemplary in everything. Chapter 15 informed us that they had followed Jesus throughout Galilee, meeting his needs. Wherever he went, whatever his needs were, these ladies were there. As Jesus was suffering on the cross, and as most of his male companions had abandoned him, These ladies were right there. They hadn't left his side. They were there to comfort him. When he died, they led a lonely funeral procession out to Joseph's grave. And now, so loyal they are, they won't let anything stop them from honoring their Lord, making sure that he got the customary burial treatment, while others had probably given up any such idea. It's, it's yet another exemplary um, or um, extraordinary act of devotion on their part. It just testifies to how devoted these women were, that they're going to go and it, it, the circumstances had prevented them from doing what was normally done, which would be to anoint a, a body right after death. And now this, this corpse had been rotting in their minds, not in reality, but in their minds, they're going to go and they're going to endure that odor because they loved him so much. They purchased their spices. They waited for morning. Verse 2 says, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? I don't know what time... The Marys usually got up and got busy about their day, but it says here it was very early on the first day of the week. Mark says just after sunrise, but John indicated that Mary set out while it was still dark. So I just take this to mean that the the sun rose as they were on their way. 
Have you ever been in this kind of situation before? I'm sure most of us have. You're all night long. You've got something on your mind. You go to bed with it on your mind, and you're just kind of tossing and turning all night long. Um, As we age, I think sometimes we don't sleep as well, so some of our older folks can probably say, yeah, that's just this week. Um, And and you're just thinking about it. You wake up during the night. You're checking the clock. It seems like forever till morning comes, and maybe it's... Maybe it's 4 a.m. and maybe you have a problem or a project or something you've just been thinking through and you're like, I can't wait any longer. I've got to get up. I imagine that's how it was for, for the Marys here, tossing and turning, waiting. Um, I imagine they would have gone the day before, but they couldn't do that. It was unlawful to do that on the Sabbath. So this is their first opportunity, Sunday morning. In fact... So eager were they that they apparently hadn't thought through every detail of their plan. And they asked, who's going to roll away that stone from the entrance of the tomb? It was a massive stone, as we'll see in a moment. Um, Mark calls it, if we kind of go with a more literal translation from the Greek, he calls it exceedingly great. Now, putting the stone into place would have been much easier because typically they were, they were round and they would roll them downhill and kind of lodge them into a groove or a slot in the ground. But they could only be dislodged with, with much effort. And so um, some scholars estimate that it probably would have taken four or more grown men to, to move it. And, and, and that was necessary because of grave robbers in that day. Um, so the Marys here in their eagerness, they overlooked an important detail, but just as that occurred to them, it says they looked up verse four, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away as they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. The descriptions of these tombs are quite interesting to me. Uh, here's one, and I'm just going to read it to you because I think it'll help you better visualize what the women experienced that morning. This description says, Inside the large opening of the outside of the tomb was an antechamber or a, a, a before chamber, okay, an antechamber at the back of which a rectangular doorway about two feet wide led inside. So you see it's, it's actually a chamber in front of another chamber. We're, we're heading to a room behind a room, all right? Continuing. Small, low doorways between the antechamber and the burial chamber were standard features of Jewish tombs in this period. The inner chamber where the body had been laid was perhaps six or seven feet square and about the same height. So it was after the women entered the antechamber that they crouched down and and went through the, the, the smaller door and looked, and it says to the right side, they see this man sitting there. Bodies in those days were often laid in on, on top of like a built-in shelf. And um, I assume that that's probably where this unexpected visitor was seated. 
where Jesus had been laying. And look at the reaction of the women. It says they were alarmed. You would be too. <laughs> I don't care how tough you are. Uh, you would be too. Trust me on this one. That, that's the standard reaction to anybody who encounters an angel in the Bible. They were alarmed because that's the, the young man was an angel. We learned from John's gospel that there were actually two angels, but Mark kind of has this habit of, you know, he did this with the, the demon-possessed men, at the Gerasenes, where he'll, he'll take the two and he'll say, I want to focus on one. So Mark's focusing here on this one angel and um, who announced to Mary, verse 6, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. And there it is. There it is. The statement, the claim on which all of history hinges. He has risen. If this is true, it literally changes everything. We'll come back to that later. The angel's next statement, he is not here. You know who agreed with that? It wasn't just the disciples who agreed with that. In fact, the Jewish leaders themselves agreed with that claim. And their explanation for the empty tomb was that the body had been stolen but it's worth noting that virtually no one in antiquity and no one even in recent times, virtually no one has doubted the empty tomb. The lonely few who do tend to be dismissed, not well respected even by secular scholars. And now the angel gives the woman an invitation to see for themselves. See the place where they laid him, the angel says. Don't overlook the importance of that statement. You know, the angel could have, uh, think about this, he's, he's from heaven, he's dazzling white. He could have, when the minute they arrived, instead of sitting in the inner chamber, he could have parked himself right at the very entrance next to the stone and said, He is risen! You don't need to look inside. I, take my word for it. I'm a dazzling white angel from heaven. You can believe me. Nope. Not what he said. Christianity, starting with this statement, has always encouraged investigation. The Christian movement instigated by God himself on that morning, couldn't even go a couple hours without beseeching, come, investigate, test the claim. The angel was inviting the women to consider the evidence, to see for themselves, not to take his word for it. Here you have an empty tomb. Look around. Do you see a body in here? And that's not all. The evidence will get stronger. Verse 7. But go, 
Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You ever wonder why Jesus, I mean, he had conquered death, right? The job was done. He died. He rose. The job was done. You ever wonder why the minute he rose from the dead, he didn't just go straight up into heaven? I think he did it for us. I think it's because God wanted us to be confident in the truth. He's considerate in that way. He's sensitive in that way. Sometimes Christianity has been described, and we can probably thank the, uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard for this, but sometimes Christianity has been described as just this blind leap into the dark, just, just this blind leap of faith. Have you heard that expression? That's anything but true. It's not a blind leap at all. On the contrary, Christianity was intended to be believed or rejected on the evidence. The gospel from its outset, presented by the apostles and those who came after them, was presented as logical and reasonable and intellectually compelling. It was a set of propositions about God and his son that can be reasonably understood and tested. Our faith in Jesus Christ enjoys many strong proofs, and one of them is that the angel's prediction here was fulfilled. He said, there you will see him. And here's Paul's testimony from 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It was all prophesied. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, died that is. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. The prediction that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, would now appear to his disciples, that prediction was fulfilled in history. The evidence is overwhelming. Um, you know, I, I went through this phase, uh, this was probably close to a quarter century ago now, where I, I, I just had to know, is this true? Is this, I don't want to give my life to something that's not true. And through the years, I've, I've read their books, The Atheists. I read, I mean, I remember somebody saying, oh, you got to read um, uh, Russell, Bertrand Russell. Why I'm not a Christian. I remember somebody telling me that would be that that would be compelling. And so it was always in the early years when I would read these guys, I was a little bit of fear. Like, is is this book gonna overturn everything that, that I believe? But I still gotta read it. I, I I'm not saying everybody did, but I felt like I needed to. And I read it and I think, 
okay, how, how's he going to confront the, the resurrection appearances of Christ? What's he going to say about the fact that this, this movement began in Jerusalem at the time, in the place where Jesus died? And that these people were willing to give up their families, give up their jobs, give up everything to follow this Christ that they said was alive. And they had seen him or they knew people had seen him. What's Russell going to say about this? Doesn't even address it. I've never seen anybody, any skeptic address that in a compelling way. We stand on good reason. Kids, you're going to go out there in the world and they're going to laugh at you and say, you believe in Jesus? Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you what. My prediction is that the people that laugh at you have never even asked what then explains how Christianity could, could arise in such a hostile environment if, if they didn't see the risen Christ. What explains why these 11 disciples would go to their painful deaths? Not even one of them would, would recant and say, no, we made it up, we made it up, we actually did steal the bodies. What explains that? They haven't even asked that question. They haven't dealt with that. What we believe is true. Christ rose. That changes everything. What is the reaction of the women? Well, it seems like they couldn't get out of there fast enough. Verse 8 says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. We think, oh, I th- we just sit there and talk to that angel and soak it up. No! <laughs> I'm guessing that we would run to. I don't know. Says they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now I take this to mean that they said nothing to anyone on the way home. Okay, they might have passed this or that person. It would be natural to say you wouldn't believe what just happened to me, but but they they didn't. They they went straight home. They didn't talk to anybody on the way. Of course, they did go and tell others, the disciples. That is, according to Mark's gospel, according to what we're about to read in verse ten. But now back to that earlier question for a moment, verses 9 to 20. Almost everyone admits here, if you look again at verse 8, this is kind of an abrupt ending to the gospel. And so some people propose that there really, uh, originally there was more of a conclusion. Um, I read one scholar who said ancient biographies just don't end this way because if you have a hero, they kind of resolve it and they make you look to him. And and so Mark's ending probably would have said something about the appearances of Jesus to his disciples. Maybe so. I'm not sure. But some people think that that the ending looked a lot like the ending we read in Matthew and that it was just lost. Okay, Um, and. um, it's interesting because it would have been on a scroll originally, um, and so 
this particular author that I was reading, uh, writing back like in the 1980s, I believe, he said um, ancient people weren't any better at rewinding than we are. Now, kids in the digital age, you don't even know what that means. But uh, we used to have to rewind our cassette tapes and our VCR tapes. And again, ask your parents. Um, but uh, we never did, did we? <laughs> so, so. Um, So they would have to unwind this scroll to read to the end. And as they're unwinding, the rest of it is rolling up. And so the end would get folded over. And this scholar was saying that the the very end of that would have been maybe exposed to the elements. And over time, kind of got, um, you know, worn off. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there was a different ending to Mark. All I know is that the ending that we have starts in verse 9. So let's look at it. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. This basically agrees with the other Gospels. And this is, by the way, not the kind of story that the early church would have invented. If they're trying to spread Christianity, you, you wouldn't invent this detail that the women were the first ones to find it. Because by Jewish law, women weren't even allowed to testify. If this were a made-up story, sh- surely the, those who had found the tomb would be the male disciples. Or maybe Joseph of Arimathea. Um, maybe he would get the honors, but it, it wouldn't have been the, the women. And so the... the the only explanation for this detail is, is this, that it was just factual. It was just, that's how it happened, the resurrection uh, appearance. Verse 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned, reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And, and you know what this sounds like to me? This sounds like the rest of Mark, in a way. Um, if you're looking for some continuity between this last part and the, the first part, I mean, that's one of the characteristics of Mark's gospel is, is that he doesn't go easy on the disciples, does he? Um, especially Peter. He's just he's always dunking on these guys. And, and we've we've been noticing that for months, haven't we? And we certainly see that in verses 11 through 14. Three times here. Stubborn, slow to believe, even even when it's reported to them, even when eyewitnesses said we saw him. Sometimes people who are, are Bible critics or critics of Christianity don't actually read the Bible don't know what happened, they'll say, well, the explanation for the disciples believing that Jesus rose from the dead is sometimes when you're looking for something and and you just you're anticipating it so eagerly and you want it to happen and you believe it's going to happen. Then you think it did and you interpret whatever you did see based on your expectations. No, it's not what happened. They weren't anticipating this at all. To the contrary, they. The Gospels tell us they just were not in this frame of mind. 
at all. They didn't believe it when it was reported to them. They had to see the risen Christ themselves with their own eyes, with the possible exception of John, uh, for whom the empty tomb was apparently enough because John's gospel says that that other disciple, he doesn't name himself. It says that he went in and he believed, but the rest of them had to see. Now the final words from Jesus, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on, the, on sick people and they will get well. Now, sometimes this section is just kind of dismissed by people who just can't imagine that Jesus would tell his followers to play with snakes, right? Or to drink poison. Well, a closer look reveals that no such message is given by Jesus. He merely promises that these miraculous signs would be observed. He doesn't say everybody's going to go out and drive out demons or speak in tongues. He just says that this will be witnessed. It will be observed. He certainly doesn't instruct anyone to deliberately handle deadly snakes or drink poison. Just that in some cases, when that happens, those people will be protected. And we see this at the end of the, uh, end of the book of Acts. Uh, Luke records this uh, first part of chapter 28. Paul is on the island of Malta out in the Mediterranean. You remember the story? And they're warming themselves around the fire or they're putting firewood in there. And a snake comes out and it gets on him and it bites him. And everybody thinks he's going to drop dead, right? But he doesn't. And then, then they're like, oh, he must be a god. Um, and, yeah, he sets them straight, obviously. Um, and so this actually comes to pass. We have a, a record of, of this happening, but it wasn't that Paul was, you know, handling snakes. The snake jumped on him. Um, and, he, and he also laid his hands on the, um, one of the officials there on the island. So this, this comes true. Um, you're probably aware, I'm sure some of you are maybe thinking of like news clips that you've seen or maybe a YouTube video, uh, some churches, predominantly in Appalachia, uh, where, where they actually handle snakes. It's part of their worship time. Uh, we've never done that here. Um, don't expect it. <laughs> um, but they, they dance around. It's really quite, quite the sight. Um, more than a few of them have died from this practice, as we might expect. I watched a story one time about a guy whose dad was a pastor who died from a, a rattlesnake bite and his grandpa was a pastor who died of a rattlesnake bite and then he ended up dying so three generations um yeah you know remember the story when satan essentially said to jesus cast yourself down from this high place and you know, for it's written that God will send his angels to take charge of you. In other words, he's going to save you. And what did Jesus say? It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we do not doubt the sincerity of their faith. Don't, don't judge their faith. 
but we do doubt the, the wisdom of the practice. Um, if you think about this, they're not drinking poison, are they? I mean, so nothing, nothing here would justify that any more than it would uh, to drink poison. I'm sure I don't have to convince you, but maybe at some point you'll, you'll have an opportunity to talk to someone about that. And, and it is, you know, sometimes people say Christians are crazy, look what they do. That's probably about 0.001% of Christian, <laughs> Christianity that, that does that. Um, but again, let's, let's not doubt the sincerity of their faith. If they believe that this is what God wants them to do, I think uh, they need better hermeneutics, but I don't want to sit in judgment of their faith. What shouldn't be lost in this, these final words from Jesus, is really the first part, the command here, to go into the world and preach the good news to all. Baptism was seen as normative, applying to all, but it was belief that saved. And belief that saves. Verse 19, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them. Looks like a little bit of synergism there, if you're familiar with that word. The Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. He is risen. You can say it. He is risen. And some of you are going, wait a minute. Let me get my phone out and see what month it is. Isn't it December? This is an Easter tradition. We don't do that because it's a tradition. We do it because it's true. We do it because it's life-changing. The fact that Jesus has risen changes everything. It's our common confession. You know, it's one thing to say he is risen. It's one thing to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, from the dead, is a historical fact. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to live like it's true. How do we live like the resurrection is true? Come, follow me, Jesus said. The first call was heeded by the fishermen. The second call in chapter 10 to the rich young ruler was neglected. He waited out. Jesus said, go get rid of this stuff, sell your possessions, give the poor, then come and follow me, and then you will have treasures in heaven. And he said, I'm weighing this. I wanted to follow you, Jesus, but oh, you're making it hard. I think this stuff is worth more to me. And he went away sad. The third call is to us. It's not come follow me, but also follow the world that hates me. 
Jesus doesn't say, come follow me. When you're ready, when you've had your fun and played around in the world and chased after everything that your heart desires, then come follow me. He doesn't say, come follow me, but go ahead and set your own terms. Everything's negotiable. That's not it. It is a very simple statement. Come follow me. Period. Regardless of what it might cost you. Come follow me. And all that that means. Are you ready for that? The resurrection is really the exclamation point on Jesus' authority. I want to say that again. The resurrection is the exclamation point on Jesus' authority. Jesus doesn't suggest that you come and follow him. Jesus commands it. And all authority was given to him. May we heed his call. May we follow this one who has risen from the dead. He is risen.